0: Well, let me add my welcome, my name's Alistair, I'm the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside, and I'm really grateful you're joining us for this Christmas Eve service. Uh, If you are just joining us, I want to let you know uh, that through the season of Advent, we've been inviting our church to give to an Advent fund. And everything given to this fund is being distributed evenly among five partners we have uh, who do really great things for this world. And they're listed on the screen. So if you want to learn more about any of them, you can visit their website. But I also want to let you know that today is the last day that you can give to this fund. So if you want to give, you can give online and select Advent Fund, or you can give through text message by texting 84321, the amount, and the word Advent. And once again, everything given to this fund is being given evenly among these five partners. So if you've already given, I want to thank you. Our church has been incredibly generous, and we're grateful for that. And if you choose to give today, thank you as well. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to celebrate and remember your goodness in sending your Son into this world. As we open your word, we ask that you would apply it to our minds so that we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts so that we not grow cold, and that you'd apply it to our feet, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want you to try and imagine a government official making a declaration that suddenly puts everything on hold for you. I know that's really hard to imagine, but everything we're doing uh, as precautionary measures to care well for the most vulnerable in our society, all the restrictions in place, this can actually help us enter into this passage from the Gospel of Luke. Because roughly 2000 years ago, a town crier came to Nazareth of Galilee of all places, a small backwater town that usually wasn't on the Roman Empire's radar. But the town crier came in and he unrolled his scroll and he made a declaration. Augustus Caesar, son of a God, demands that all the empire be registered. So depart to your hometown immediately. And just like that, Everything would have been put on hold. No exceptions. Uh, A failure to comply could mean that your house is taken away. It could mean imprisonment. It could even mean death. And so we read that Joseph and Mary, it didn't matter that the baby could come any day now. They were required to go, as Luke writes. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because... He belonged to the house of the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Luke says, off to Bethlehem they go. This was Joseph's hometown, the town of David. And Luke doesn't want us to overlook this fact because he says, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Now, this is the ancient equivalent of bold and italicized, put together. This isn't some throwaway uh, detail. Uh, Luke wants us to pay attention to this. Over the past few years, more and more people uh, have welcomed having their DNA harvested by faceless corporations who claim they're tracing your lineage. So hopefully you can bear with me as I briefly trace Joseph's lineage and a bit of Jewish history to help us make sense of this passage. Joseph had some clout. We see that here. Joseph was a descendant of the most beloved king in Israel's history, King David. And long ago, God had made a promise to David. And the promise was that God would establish an everlasting throne of peace through one of King David's descendants. And this future king would be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would usher in this kingdom of peace. One of Israel's prophets, Micah, later prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem is the town of David. And so our passage here in Luke, it mentions David, it mentions Bethlehem. These These are messianic ingredients. And of course, Luke has actually been making this point several times leading up to this part of his gospel. In chapter one, he's already pointed out in verse 27 that Joseph is a descendant of David. Uh, When Gabriel visits Mary, Gabriel says, The Lord God will give your son the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And when Jesus' uncle, Zechariah, prophesies in a song, he said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So as Luke begins his gospel, he doesn't want his readers to miss an obvious point. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who who will usher in God's everlasting kingdom of peace. Jesus is the one through whom God is bringing salvation to this world. Bold, underlined, underscored. Luke doesn't want us to miss this in the opening of his gospel. And yet... The reception of the Messiah isn't what you would expect. You would think a king of this stature would have a pretty glamorous birth story. You think he'd be wrapped in decadent clothing and, and placed in a golden crib, bedazzled in jewels beside the royal throne. But Luke writes, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them so no palace no throne no decadence a manger now if you've grown up in western culture this is a pretty familiar story to you. You likely know how it goes. Mary was comedically pregnant and they've barely made it to Bethlehem in time and Joseph's been paying attention. The contractions are happening every four minutes and they're 60 seconds long. This means Mary's in fast labor because Joseph was paying attention in those birthing classes and so he's panicking and there's no hospitals in the ancient world. So they they try the inns and they try the motels and they're all full. The no vacancy signs are lit with candles and joseph's cursing himself for not making a registration in advance online and so nobody is helping them and they knock on door after door but who's going to welcome this hot mess into their homes on christmas eve of all days so eventually someone lets them in use a stable outback and then jesus is born and he's placed quietly in a manger surrounded by talking animals this is the gist of of the story, but the actual picture is far more nuanced. Joseph and Mary, Luke says, arrived in Bethlehem, and they likely were there for a little bit before labor began. And it's not clear whether the manger was outdoors in a stable or indoors in a home, because sometimes a manger was actually a recessed bowl in the warmest spot of the house, or if it was actually in a cave with a manger, as tradition actually holds in other places. So there's evidence to support a variety of scenarios, uh, but given Joseph's prestigious background and given the way cultural memory worked, when he arrived in Bethlehem, people would have known who he was, and it's likely a peasant family helped him out, and it's most likely that Jesus was born in a humble home. Uh, but to my knowledge, there were no talking animals. Even so, a manger a manger. This all seems very underwhelming for the birth story of the Messiah. You know, born and placed in a manger, what kind of king is this? Luke is quietly pointing out that Jesus is unlike the kings we know in this world. During the time of his birth, we already have been told Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he's busy measuring his empire. He's measuring his accomplishments. He's having his subjects registered. And the motto of Rome was Pax Romana, which meant Roman peace. So Augustus had supposedly established an empire of peace. The only problem is it wasn't done peacefully. Pax was built on a mound of exploitation and oppression and violence. And on top of this, Augustus declared himself a demigod. We have inscriptions that read, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. In other words, how Augustus wielded violence to establish a supposed peaceful empire told people something about how they could expect God to act. But while Augustus played God, while he sought to measure his kingdom, a different kingdom is inaugurated. God is born as one of us. God is born not in a place of prestige and power, but as one of the people being numbered in this humble setting. This is the kind of behavior you can expect from the true God. It's a little surprising, but we shouldn't be surprised. One of the Hebrew prophets long ago, Isaiah, declared this, This is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So although God is unfathomable, although he's set apart and high and exalted beyond space and time, The place he chooses to dwell on earth is with the contrite and with the lowly. God is found among humble people in a humble place. God is found in a manger. And a manger might strike us as an odd place to find God. But according to the prophet, this is entirely consistent with who God is. Because God is quite unlike the men who pretend to be him. It's surprising to us to find God in a manger, but God reveals himself in ways that go against our natural intuition. God reveals himself as a God who is in fact gentle and humble. Is God almighty? Absolutely. Is he powerful? Of course he is, but he is also gentle and humble. And Jesus says so himself in his in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On Christmas, we remember that long ago Christ was born. But he was no ordinary king. God became man and put his gentleness and humility on display for the world to see. But why? Why would God do this? Uh, the New York Times best-selling author Tim Keller says, Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. Here's what he means by that. A God who is only high and lifted up, as Isaiah says, a God who is only holy, wouldn't come down to earth. No, that kind of God would tell us that we need to improve our lives. We need to become holy. We need to become moral. We need to be good people. We need to ascend to heaven and go up to that God. But this isn't the picture of the Christmas story. But it's often the picture we have of religion, isn't it? We even see Christians living this way. But this is not the way of God. And yet, there's another picture of God that's more frequent in our modern imagination, that that God is a God of all-encompassing love, that God just loves and loves and loves and is somewhat indifferent to the suffering of this world because it's going to work out in the end. God loves everybody. You're going to be welcomed in. But that's not the picture of the Christmas story either. We get a different picture. God is born and he's placed in a manger as a vulnerable baby. And this undoes moralism and it undoes relativism. God descends to be with us because we can't ascend to be with him. We could never be holy enough to enter his presence. We could never be good enough. We could never be moral enough. And yet God descends to us also because he loves us so much that he cannot turn a blind eye to this world, that his love causes him to take action and to actually name things as right and wrong, good and evil. He actually comes in to reveal to us what his real love looks like. And it's not just an aloof love. It is a broad and fierce love for what he has created and for every person he has made. And so God came down. He became one of us. And and Luke tells us he did this to save us. He did this to forgive our sins. He did this to deliver us from the world as it is, to inaugurate this true everlasting kingdom of peace. And it's arrived. It's begun. It's being established, but it's not fully here yet. But if Christmas is just a legend or a myth, the way of empires and kingdoms and nations of this world, that's all we've got. You know, we might roll our eyes at Augustus Caesar from our vantage point in history. We're skeptical. You know, sure, he declared himself a demigod, but surely nobody really believed him. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. The evidence points to both. But what we see in Augustus is how desperately we want peace. We desperately want peace. We want peace so badly in our lives and in the world that we'll call someone a god. We'll play along as long as they're good enough, as long as their agenda serves our needs. And if it does, we'll turn a blind eye to what that kingdom actually costs because we actually enjoy its benefits. And we're much more like those in ancient Rome than we dare admit. If you examine how the majority world suffers to afford us our Western lifestyle, you'll, you're going to see uncomfortable parallels between our nation and the peace of Pax Romana. But perhaps we're improving, perhaps we're growing, perhaps by degree of comparison to ancient Rome or even a hundred years ago, society's getting better. And if Christmas isn't true, the only myth we can really hold on to is the myth of progress. Things are getting better. They have to get better. That's our only option. And we're going to hold on to that despite evidence that suggests this isn't an accurate story of history or even reality. But we'll hold on to this myth because it's our hope. But if Christmas is true, if Christmas is true, God came for the contrite and the lowly. He came for those who are wearied and burdened. God came for those who are disenfranchised with the empty political visions of this world. God came for those who don't benefit from false kingdoms of peace. God came for those who will humbly receive him. God came for those who would come to him with their burdens and their frustrations with their sins with their brokenness and he invites any and all to come and be part of this everlasting kingdom of peace this peace starts vulnerable in the gospel of luke it starts small it it starts with a cry in a manger but it cannot be overcome it will not be overcome by violence or oppression, not by evil, not by sin, not even by a cross. This is what we discover in the manger. And faith gives us eyes to see that the Messiah has come and he will return. He will establish an everlasting kingdom of peace. And we can be part of it now as we gather around the manger and remember that God came down because God is for us and God is with us and God will see his promise through until the kingdom of peace reigns on this earth at Christ's return. Let's pray.